The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. I'm here with Bruce Barquette. And today... Emphasis on mayhem? Well, emphasis on mayhem, but we're the expert insiders, so to speak. Well, we always are the expert insiders. True. Not want to brag, but we are... We this is our us talking about our day job for the most part. Right? How, how long have you been practicing in the criminal justice system? Um, it's going to make you sound old. Well, I, I as my kids point out, I am old, yeah. and that's okay. My goal is to keep getting older. Um, in my head, I'm still young and strong, and I might be strong, but my as my kids say, I'm not young. Um, but Forty? No. No. Let me let me just uh, no thirty six years. I'm almost 17. That's a long time. I know. I mean, for, nobody for would guess one... that by looking at you. <laughs> Thank you. Too bad our, our listeners can't see me. Well, um, they could if we set up our video, <laughs> and which we will do one day. I Spe- will, when I get Botox, we will set up the video. Speaking of which, we invite people to follow us on our uh, social media pages, Instagram, Crime and Justice Radio, and Twitter, it's Crime Justice FM or at Crime Justice FM. Um, and feel free to call in tonight if you'd like. Number is 516 745 is our office number. The number for the um, radio station is 631-451-1039. Um, uh, I, I know that we have, the station tells us we have 125,000 people who tune in every week either on the radio or through the computer so if you're listening on the computer you can still call in to to that number which is 631-451-1039 and if you're listening on the radio you can obviously still call in and on to mayhem on to mayhem well we're actually going to talk as long as time allows we're going to talk mental illness and criminal justice um we're going to talk about eric adams's plan to essentially force, evaluate, and potentially psychiatrically commit people that are mentally ill that appear not to be able to take care of themselves. We're going to talk about two um, at-risk individuals, uh, one with a mental illness, one with autism, that in Suffolk County were um, stopped by police who escalated the situation and both ended up dead. So we're going to talk about like the possible dangers of doing the right thing, which is what Eric Adams, Mayor Eric Adams seeks to do, but what the practical effect and the collateral consequences of that can be as we're seeing in this huge expose by Newsday um, on uh, Suffolk PD um, detainment and the deaths of two mentally ill individuals. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get into the Trump convictions, uh, the Trump organization convictions, and chat about how an organization can be convicted. Uh, what happens? They can't go to jail. We'll put the Trump um, Corporation right. uh, on Rikers Island. And, and we may talk about uh, the federal detention, you know, versus state bail if we get to it. Um, I do want to say this before we go into uh, the criminal mindset. Um, I want to say that sadly, it feels like every episode, 
um, we end up reporting on an additional death in Rikers Island. And I was looking briefly before I left the office and saw that um, number 19, Edgardo Mejia, 39, was found unresponsive at Rikers, uh, 5 p.m., declared dead Sunday, this Sunday. It's almost two a month. And, so. and by the way, it almost is every week. maybe this will be the, the bookends of our show if we get to the federal system on detention. He was in Rikers for shoplifting perfume, and he died of a suspected overdose. They still haven't fully investigated his death. But he's the sixth person to die of an alleged overdose at Rikers. How, how is he in Rikers for a petit larceny, which I is not a available well, it says offense? Shoplifting is the perfume. Maybe the perfume was very expensive. But even grand larceny yeah. is 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 not. So there's there's got to be more to that story. And the term bailable offense is inside baseball stuff. If it's not a bailable offense, it means the judge can't set bail and the person has to be released. And there's a whole class of crimes in New York where the judges cannot set bail, which touches on the whole bail reform issue that we've talked about a lot. Maybe, sorry, I'm actually trying to look him up on web crimes. Maybe there was an assault too. Sometimes people get arrested for petty offenses. They try to run. Uh, It was a robbery. Uh, I'll bet you it was a robbery because he ran afterwards or fought with a guard or something like that. Yeah. In any event, let's move on to the mental illness. You mentioned there are two individuals. Newsday ran a story uh, on December 9th, which is an unbelievable. It's long. So if you've got a free 20 minutes or so, you should take the time to read it. But it is absolutely heartbreaking where uh, Daniel McDonald, a uh, 40-year-old carpenter, died in police custody, and Daniel Simmons, who was 29 years old, an autistic and nonverbal, also died in police custody. Separate incidents, same overall mode of uh, operation, if you will, by the police. It seems that they provoked an incident, uh, agitated the the individuals who then became uh, somewhat unruly. They restrained them aggressively and killed both men. Um, but you wanted to start with Eric Adams. Yeah, and sorry, I was actually, I looked that up. So he was in Rikers for robbery in the third degree, which is a D felony. It's it's barely violent, and it was probably a glorified disorderly conduct. After or shoplifting, trying. right. Right, so, so a lot of these people are charged with robbery, and that sounds bad. Like, oh my God, this guy must have had a gun or a knife and attacked a police officer. And really often, it's the case where the person is poor, they're trying to make a buck, or they steal something well, in a store, police. Well, or security try to stop them and that they fight with the security yeah. guard on the way out it's it's and they, stealing you know. property and use of force during the course of the commission of the crime or, or the immediate flight. flight therefrom and they end up uh, being charged with robbery instead of pettit larceny uh, all of which is bad but um, should not have been in Rikers for that and certainly should have died and the overdose uh, point that you make is quite poignant how the heck is Rikers run so badly that we have a half a dozen people dying, not only taking drugs in jail, but dying of overdoses. And didn't recently a federal court say we don't need federal intervention? Right. We can give Rikers a little bit more time to fix yeah. their fix yeah. their problems. Well, well, people continue to die. And I'm willing to bet that this individual is, is, is poor, um, obviously has a substance abuse problem, and maybe some mental illness. Um, which gets us to Mayor Adams' plan, and whether it's it's a good plan or a bad plan, I think a lot of people don't know how they feel about it. Um, I want to point out before 
This is astounding, and maybe you don't trust the source because it's the CDC. But according to the CDC, more than <laughs> more than fifty percent of Americans will be diagnosed with a mental illness or oh, disorder yeah, at nonsense. some point in their lifetime, and that's like one in five Americans. I don't know how that more math than, adds up. You said up. more than fifty percent. Is that what you said? Yeah, more than fifty percent is it's, half. It's half our office. We just have to figure out which ones. <laughs> well, which one no. <laughs> between me and you? Which one has the bigger mental illness? Um, but look, mental illness has a wide range. So there's a difference between someone who's schizophrenic or bipolar with schizoaffective disorder and someone who's had some long-term situational depression or anxiety. And if you have anxiety, the CDC most certainly will include that as a mental illness. Whereas like, you know, I believe that over 50% of the people in our country do have anxiety. That's perfectly normal. Um, but, uh, that's alarming. And I do think that there's been a rise in in what feels like crime. Maybe it's not a direct or well, statistical there's been a rise rising. in crime. Right. But I do think a lot of it is because of obviously the the pandemic and civil unrest and divisive politics. So there's been a rise in poverty, a rise in homelessness, a decline of mental health services and all kinds of other services that make people uh, better. It, you know, add to that divisive times a lot of anger. Um, and, and what this results in, in my view, is an increase in apparent mental illness on the streets. When you ride the subways, you notice there are more mentally ill people on the subways, more mentally ill people on the streets, more homeless people. It doesn't mean that they're dangerous or that they're going to commit crimes. But a lot of the crimes that people were complaining about claiming this is the fault of bail reform, like the big kind of splashy crimes that appeared on the cover of the New York Post. They weren't out on bail. They didn't have any pending cases. They were like completely mentally ill and unmedicated, right? So Mayor Adams announces this plan, which seems like a step in the right direction. And he has an agenda and what they're claiming on his website, they're saying his, his, uh, he wants to basically expand um, the law, which right now is is you can commit someone if they're a danger to others or themselves, right? But the directive seeks to um, sort of expand that definition to people that t- can't take care of themselves, right? And that can be anyone, right? Like a, a, a homeless person that, like what, he... Looks like he hasn't bathed. He looks like can, he's he's hungry. Can I offer thoughts on this? Yes. That look, this is a failure of the system well before it gets to the point of somebody wandering around in the streets in the cold without proper clothing, without being fed, homeless. The individuals that you're describing that uh, people have seen on the subways or in the streets of New York. How does it get to the point in our city, in our society, where we have large numbers of people who aren't being cared for in any way, shape, or form by family members, by uh, the system, by welfare, by whatever, where they end up wandering around in the subways, uh, homeless, and obviously mentally ill? That's that. And then the last step or the last stage of societal intervention is the police to take them into custody. Well... Or some, I mean... Well, here's what the agenda is. This is, is just so you understand. Um, Making the law explicit that a person requires care when their mental illness prevents them from meeting their own basic needs. That may be homeless people that are not mentally ill. 
Um, and, and what, what is defined as mental illness? Is it someone with anxiety or depression or is it someone who's schizophrenic, not medicated and, and could actually be dangerous? Uh, mandating that hospital clinicians consider a range of factors when assessing a patient's need for involuntary admission or retention. So basically this gives the authority to law enforcement and, um, and, uh, social workers that I think he seeks to hire to approach people and basically detain them because that's take what you them have into to custody. take them into custody, you're not going to take them to jail, but force an evaluation on them, right. right? Force an evaluation on them. And, um, and ultimately uh, decide, let the authorities decide whether or not they should be committed. So it seems like it's a, it's good on its face, but is it well, legal? What impact can it have? And will it cast too wide a net and capture people that are not appropriate? And can it be abused, right? Think about a domestic violence dispute and husband says, wife is crazy, she's acting out, she's mentally ill, she needs some help. Will she be committed, even though she's committed no crime because she's angry and suffering or depressed? Um, I think this has the potential for abuse, um, even though it's well-intentioned. But what's interesting is while I was looking into this, that's when this report in Suffolk uh, was issued, and that's exactly the same problem that I fear is that this individual who was bipolar um, and this other individual who was nonverbal and autistic uh, needed some assistance. Both were calm and non-combative until police got involved. And rather than de-escalating the situation, which all police officers need training on de-escalation, um, and by the way, so so do lawyers for that matter, because we've represented individuals that have severe, debilitating mental illnesses. And a lawyer can aggravate that client or they can de-escalate them and make them feel comfortable, right? It's it's sort of an art form and it, it requires training, education, and experience. Look, but uh, both of them ended up dead. And that's what I fear if this legislative act... He- goes into effect and goes into effect without really, really strict parameters but and proper training. It, the proper training is is obviously critical. And look, the two individuals, it, it really, I would urge people to read this article. It's 41 pages, so it might take you a little bit longer than 20 minutes, or it, would take me, it took me longer than 20 minutes, that's for sure. Uh, one individual is David McDonald, who is a 40-year-old carpenter and married, but he suffered from bipolar disorder. He got arrested for... Uh, supposedly violating an order of protection, which is a misdemeanor, uh, because he supposedly swerved at somebody. So some in civilian made a complaint. He was brought into custody, and his mother tried to bring the medication to the police department so he could take his medication, and they wouldn't accept it. They wouldn't provide it to him, uh, despite police guidelines that they're supposed to, if people are on medication, they're supposed to get it to them. If they don't have it or they don't uh, want to accept it from a family member, they're supposed to bring him to a hospital so a doctor can prescri- prescribe it. They didn't, and his his condition worsened over the course of the night in jail to the point where he was yelling and screaming. Uh, other inmates reported him doing crazy things, and they and I, I shouldn't say crazy things, reported him doing things like putting his clothing in the toilet, putting it acting on. Acting irrational. Acting irrationally. And the officers went in and ended up handcuffed him, put a spit hood on his head, and applied pressure, we don't know where physically, such that he stopped breathing, Breathing. uh, much like 
Um, George, both of these individuals are, are reminiscent of George Floyd, although they happened years before this. And I'll give you a quote from Ron McAndrew, who was a former prison warden in Florida State who handled or oversaw executions, and he was also a guest on our show a while back. He said, you should be able to bring a man out of a cell, sit him down and restrain him without putting a scratch on him, let alone killing him. Did, did the the law enforcement agency tasked with the responsibility of investigating these suspicious deaths uh, caused by the Suffolk County Police Department was none other than Thomas Spoda. Thomas Spoda, and I, I know the assistant district attorney. Who's, who's who now a convicted felon. Right, who's serving five years in federal prison in Danbury. Um one of I know one of the prosecutors who presented the case and the second person who was autistic, nonverbal, and who was the police were called because he got upset in a group home. And when the police arrived, he was sitting calmly and then they tried to handcuff him, which provoked him to act out. And they ended up fighting with him and pinning him to the ground for nine minutes. He died. Uh, the witnesses described him as having the lights go off and he just stopped moving uh, after after being tased uh, a number of times and um, having mace sprayed in his face. Uh, <clears throat> the medical examiner who did the autopsy found that he died from asphyxiation and they didn't call that medical examiner to testify. They brought in another medical examiner who didn't do the autopsy but reviewed the uh, notes and who was... Uh, how can I say, more favorable to the police version that he may not have died from asphyxia, uh, from somebody kneeling on his on his head or on his back. And the, um, the Fred Klein, who was the former chief of the Homicide Bureau in Nassau County uh, as a prosecutor and also, also a guest, a guest on our, on our show. show, said that it may very well be the smoking gun showing that this case was presented to the grand jury with an idea of not obtaining an indictment, and that being the, the smoking gun being calling a different medical examiner than the one who actually performed the autopsy who had that opinion. And that's what's called dumping the case in the grand jury. And, and look, I, it's a separate from what we have here, but there's over the years we I've seen some cases in Suffolk that look like they should have been indicted, and then suddenly they're not uh, with law enforcement officials involved. You know, but but. Getting back to the mental illness, what this ha what we're what we're seeing here, and the reason why you bring this up, not so much to comment on Suffolk and these cases, although these the, the damning report by Newsday, and damning in the sense of being excellent, uh, excellent reporting. Uh, who who was the reporter who wrote this? Paul LaRocca and David uh, Schwartz. Great job, great job by Newsday. Um, Police were called to a scene with mental illness, not proper training, and the two people who should not have died that evening or those evenings ended up dying and we have uh mayor adam or not mayor adams but district attorney adams um saying we're gonna we're basically gonna unleash more law enforcement personnel on homeless oh, or mentally mayor ill adams. people right the first mayor time, adams on homeless people or I, I call it homeless people because i think this is going to end up affecting a lot of homeless people that aren't crazy but appear not to be able to care for themselves because frankly they can't 
So is this the the involuntary commitment of people without homes? And think how large that pool is. It isn't just that cliche stereotype of a man who's who's dirty and soiled and babbles to himself, but this includes young families that are no longer able to pay the rent and have gone from shelter to shelter. And by the way, when you're poor and you can't pay the bills and you can't feed yourself and you're not getting your mind filled with education and um, inspirational thoughts, you get angry and you become mentally ill, even if you're not. I have seen so many people in my life throughout my career that appeared mentally ill, that appeared they needed medication, but once they had housing, food, shelter, and support, they went back to being a normal human being. So maybe there's another method that we can figure out rather than unleashing law enforcement officers among anyone they see fit without proper de-escalation training. It, it uh, obviously a complicated issue, and I know it's something that you've done a lot of work with, and you do a lot of work uh, currently with our clients, many of some of whom have uh, significant mental illness. And what we find is that mental illness is the cause of some criminality, not pure evil. We'll be back in a uh, few minutes um, with more. We'll talk about Trump, and we'll talk about the federal bail system right after this. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Leisenring, and I'm here with Bruce Barquette. Welcome back. Welcome back. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I've been great for the last seven minutes during our commercial break. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Uh, look, I'll give the phone number out again. It's 631-451-1039. Feel free to call in and chat with us if you'd like. Uh, we are, I don't want to say guest-free tonight because the two of us are here, but we're guest-free uh, something I like to do from time to time. It's always fun to have interesting guests on, but I, I like just chatting and offering our own views about things. And um, I want to talk about two things, if we can, in this segment. One is the federal bail system, and two, Trump got convicted. Well, the Trump organization was found guilty, or at least I think two of Trump organization companies were found guilty on multiple charges of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records connected, according to CNN, to a 15-year scheme to defraud tax authorities by failing to report and pay taxes. Now, what's interesting I'm is, shocked, the Trump well, organization. it's funny too, right? Seven, 17 counts, by the way, everyone, 17. Everyone thinks, like, if you're a lawyer, you know everything. I get questions by people that are like, do you know what, you know, landlord housing laws are. I'm like, no, you don't ask like a podiatrist about heart surgery. Like we all specialize in different things. I do know that this is criminal. This is criminal law. You're you're supposed to know about this. But, but, you know, a lot of lawyers go, huh, a conviction of an organization. Now, if a person had been convicted of this or of falsifying business records, they would actually go to prison. They could spend some pretty gnarly time in upstate Prison. They actually would go to prison but for sure. you can't incarcerate an organization. So instead, uh, the, the Trump organizations have been fined. Ready? I feel like. We'll like, be fined. What, what was that? that yeah. I feel like Austin Powers, $1.6 million <laughs> fine. But and, they, not yet. The sentencing's coming up. It hasn't been sentenced yet. Oh, okay. So what do that's you think the they're maximum, facing? I think they're, they'll get the maximum penalty. Right. But, but that's like, honestly, 
I've represented, right. I've represented, you've represented people charged with tax evasion and wire fraud and these like serious conspiracies, which aren't that serious at all. It's like a bunch of guys like stealing, you know, HRA benefit checks and they end up getting fined to that amount of money, even though the conspiracy was for a short limited amount of time. Uh, they have to, they're, they're charged with like the, the foreseeable losses to all the individuals who they impacted. So it's, it's not a lot. It really is Trump change, but there are collateral consequences to this that should, according to the Manhattan DA's office that prosecuted this, have some meaningful consequences. Like banks probably won't lend the money. Insurance companies may not provide insurance. They'll have, you know, potentially zero financial support, zero financing contracts, and so forth, and some have mused that it adds pressure to settle the Letitia James civil suit against the Trump children, though I don't really buy that. Um, Well, let's talk about this for a second, because you can't put a corporation in jail, and we see uh, in our work individuals who own companies get charged and their corporations get charged at the same time. So corporations are legal entities that can face civil prosecution or civil lawsuits, and they can face criminal prosecutions, although you clearly can't uh, put a business in jail. You can only put people in jail. So how is it that in this instance, a corporation was put on trial without the owners also on trial? And usually that's what happens. The, the individual is indicted. We represent some now. We won't name them who were indicted, and their businesses were also indicted, so we represent the individual and the business, and really there's no difference between the two in terms of the allegations, the conduct, the defenses, and so forth. But in this case, Trump's organization was indicted for these tax crimes that relate to Weisenberg's Oh, not Weisen- a- Alan we- Weisselberg. Weisselberg. The former chief financial officer of the Trump organization right. and the prosecutor's what? chief cooperating witness. Right. So what happened here was Weisselberg was receiving income and wasn't paying tax on it. And it wasn't they just writing him checks and it nobody- was benefits, right? Well, but it was they were paying for his kid's school, they were paying for an apartment, they were paying for different things that normally would be that's taxable earnings. You can't have instead of taking a paycheck, if I paid for your high end, you know, living in where we're in the fancy neighborhood that you live in. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that would that would be that would be a that would be illegal. I can I can pay you a high salary or we can pay you a high salary and um, you then have to pay taxes on that and with the money left over you can rent your um, really luxurious place in whatever great neighborhood you live in. However, what happened here was they did pay for the apartment. They did pay for the schools. Uh, Our firm could pay for my kids' schools, but if they do that, I have to pay tax on that money because it's income to me. And they didn't report it. They didn't report it. And so there were two benefit beneficiaries to this. One was Weisselberg, who didn't have to pay taxes on millions of dollars. And the second was the Trump Organization, who didn't have to pay payroll taxes. So it saved the Trump Organization a tremendous amount of money. And payroll taxes, for those that aren't in business out there, if an employer is paying somebody, say, $100,000 a year in salary, uh, the, what it, it costs the employer 
typically $115,000 to pay out a hundred. So if a business employs an individual, they pay them $100,000, they deduct the taxes, the person gets taxed on $100,000, the employer has to pay an additional $15,000 to the government for Social Security taxes, for workers' compensation, and um, other items that end up being about 15%. So if the employer simply gives the person a check for $100,000 or pays for apartments and schooling and so forth, and two things happen. The employee, Weisselberg, doesn't have to pay any income tax or avoids it or evades it. And second, the corporation saves the um, payroll taxes. And here, Weisselberg is the chief uh, financial officer, so he had the ability to give himself the benefit and give the benefit to the Trump organization. Part of his testimony was he didn't do this to benefit the Trump organization. He did it to benefit himself. But there was additional proof that this kind of deal was uh, offered and uh, provided to other high-end executives within the Trump organization and that officials within the Trump organization knew it was going on, allowed it to happen, and actually helped it going on. For example, the, the head of their payroll department uh, took him off of payroll so he w- they wouldn't have to pay payroll taxes for him. And thus the corporation got charged and ended up getting convicted. You know what's odd, and I don't know the ins and outs of, of the testimony um, other than you know the, the frontline highlights, but they did an interview, was this in the New York, New York Law Journal, of the uh, prosecutors on the case, among them Joshua Steinglass. And I'm going to read this. I thought it was interesting. The defendant is the Trump Corporation, not Trump but the Trump Corporation. And apparently, uh, Judge Juan Merchant noted at trial that he was somewhat surprised by how often the defense had brought up Donald Trump by name. Um, And Joshua Steinglass, who's the prosecutor uh, on this case, said, while we weren't surprised by the facts adduced at trial, given those facts, we were not expecting the defense to argue that the owner of the defendant corporations was kept entirely in the dark. Uh, Both the testimony and the documents introduced into evidence contradicted their betrayal narrative. Once the defense made such arguments, it became incumbent upon us to demonstrate how those arguments were undermined by the evidence. So it sounds like the defense had no, shouldn't have had an interest in protecting Trump, but did so throughout the trial, opening the door for the prosecution to say, actually. Not so fast. (laughs) Right. So, um, and you know, that, things they don't teach you in law school. Well, the things you don't teach you in law school, uh, one of the things they don't teach you in law school is no lawyer on the planet with half a brain should represent Trump or anything to do with Trump because none of them end up doing very well. They all end up What was problems. that famous quote? Anyone who touches Trump dies. Everything Trump touches dies. Yeah. It was not a famous quote. It was a book by Rick Wilson, who's a political consultant with whom I've had some dealings in the past. Um one of the first, quote, never Trump Republicans, uh, end quote. And uh, he wrote a book, and I actually um, think that, um, free plug for Mr. Wilson's book, but I think he's correct. Everything Trump touches dies. And in this case, these lawyers had to do that, of course, because their employer, it's not the Trump organization, he was picked by individuals, by Trump, they wanted to protect him and say he had nothing to do with this, and he didn't know what was going on, and then the prosecution ends up putting on evidence that, in fact, he did. Uh, And that investigation continues. And while the uh, Manhattan DA's office lost 
two key prosecutors uh, who resigned earlier this year because of the slow pace of the investigation and their fear that Alvin Bragg wouldn't pursue criminal charges against Trump. They just hired uh, another um, very um, top-notch uh, white-collar prosecutor by the name of Matthew Colangelo. Uh, he started on not too long ago, and he is heading up this investigation. And I, if I'm Donald Trump, I'm getting a little nervous. I, I want to actually rewind for a moment. I, I don't know if I should ask you this, but I'm going to challenge you here. We just recently, um, one of our partners, John Laturco, was asked to represent um, probably one of the most vilified, hated individuals in Suffolk County, Michael Valva, who was charged and has since been convicted of the depraved indifference murder of his eight-year-old autistic son. And John had a kind of come-to-God criminal defense lawyer, our duties and obligations moment when the judge said, I'm asking you to represent this individual. A lot of defense lawyers won't won't touch the case. Um, we obviously he's entitled to a defense. Every single person, guilty, innocent, you know, who knows what happened, is entitled to a criminal defense lawyer. And um, one of the quotes John brought to our attention after he finished zealously uh, representing Michael Volva, despite um, his own personal feelings about. Um, the well, conduct that well, was alleged, right? All, right? right. We represent individuals, not right. conduct. Right, generally. right. So we don't, you know, someone's accused of murder, we're, we represent them, we're not condoning murder. Right, we're not <laughs> representing the act they're accused right. of, we're representing but the he, individual accused he, of the act. He quoted Clarence Darrow, and I thought it was like perfect, and he said, um, to be an effective, this is Clarence Darrow, to be an effective criminal defense counsel, an attorney must be prepared to be demanding outrageous, irreverent, blasphemous, a rogue, a renegade, and a hated, isolated, lonely person, few love, a spokesman for the despised and the damned. So here's my question. Trump gets charged, federal or state criminal allegations. He comes to you. What do you do, Mr. Barquette? Well, here, here's the exactly where you just said. We represent individuals, not the conduct we are willing to defend the charges, and we do so ethically, legally. You know, it sounds silly, but it's one of the things you've heard and everybody who works for us have heard. We don't lie, we don't cheat, we don't steal. We follow the rules meticulously because it's and the right... And we expect the prosecutors to follow those uh, rules, too. We, we and do. when they don't, we do. But we it's, raise it, it. It's an important point because, look, for two reasons we, we insist upon following the rules, and all of our lawyers insist, we insist everybody follow the rules. One, it's just the right thing to do. We have an adversarial system. There are rules. They apply to us, too. We have to follow them. Two, um, I, I want to go to sleep at night. I don't want to have a target on my back. I don't want to have a problem. <laughs> and no single client is worth it. Right. And what I've seen from Trump is that you can't do that with him. You can't just represent him legally and ethically. You have sat in a room with, you've done it and I've done it, and we've sat in a room with clients who kind of think that we're TV lawyers where we can invent defenses and say anything and do anything. We can't. And we tell the individuals, no, we're not doing that. It's not permitted. It's ethically uh, impermissible. It's illegal. Don't commit other crimes. We're not going to do this. And we're extremely good 
at manipulating the facts, at representing individuals. I'm bragging a little bit, but we're really good at this. We have a long history of successes of I'm representing sorry, individuals. I don't like manipulating the facts about, but about, wait, about pieces casting around. the facts in a different light right. and potentially a truer light. Yeah, and that's probably a better way of saying it. Uh, and we're very successful. Lawyering. At it. <laughs> there you go. That's why you're a partner. So uh, uh, with Trump, you get involved with him, and the 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 image in my mind, of the book that comes to my mind, is the Gold Coast, where the the lawyer in that book, people remember it or they don't, he was asked to represent a mafia person on the Gold Coast of Long Island. And the first big test for him is to see if he could get him out on bail. And he stood up in, in court and lied and said, I know the person didn't commit the murder because he was with me that night. Like, I have an alibi. And he, he lied. And the judge says, well, the lawyer says that, then I'm going to believe him. So I'm going to leave him out. Said no judge ever. <laughs> right. Right. But but the but the, the person succumbed to the temptation to win for the individual because the individual was so powerful and he wanted to impress him so much. And Trump has that way with individuals, with lawyers, with other people. He seduces them to his, forgive me, dishonest, uh, criminal ways. And as a result, you can't go in and say, hey, Donald, we're not doing that. I'm not saying this. I'm going to do the right thing. And you end up having to represent the conduct and represent his crazy, I shouldn't say crazy, but his dishonest way of being, much like- Well, like, you can always fire your client- I love it. A lot of clients fire so no, their I lawyers. No, I don't. I'm not represent. He's not asking us. Never going to happen. But no, I don't represent him. Nobody wants a target on their back. Well, it's not. It's not just the target on the back. It's the look. Look, if somebody came to me, a politician came, and, to and us, we've had targets on our backs. Oh, indeed, we have. <laughs> indeed, we have. Recently. R- recently, one of our own had a target on his back. Yeah. So, but uh, and target's been removed. We, nothing. Thankfully, being honest paid off in that instance. Uh, but look, if if Lee Zeldin, for example, came up to us and said, "We want you to. We want to represent. We want you to represent me." and our campaign because we think there was fraud in the election. Maybe we would take it, maybe we wouldn't, because we'd look at it and we'd assume that we could honestly fight it. If Trump came up and said the same thing and he did the lawyers, look what happened to those lawyers because he wasn't asking people to take on a case honestly. He was well, asking them to take on a case I, I think there's and lie a, I, and I'm not sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something crazy here and, and maybe defend some of the lawyers. I think that there's a point in time where you believe in a cause or you believe in a client and you have confirmation bias and all the evidence that comes in, you process in a light most favorable to your case and your client. And I think there was there. there's not only a danger of that happening to everybody that gets truly consumed in their case, and there's no way to have taken his case on as a lawyer and not been completely consumed in it 24-7 in a way that's probably unhealthy. Um, but a lot of the information that did come in appeared on its face credible. In other words, not the crazy people that testified, but some of the people that provided affidavits and and testified and, and seemed on their face normal. So I can understand why a lawyer arguing a certain position who believes in that position may um, not look at evidence coming in to support that position objectively. And that's a danger to all lawyers because you're not doing your client a favor. And it happens to prosecutors. It happens to defense lawyers. It happens to corporate lawyers. But that's the temptation. And with Trump, 
the temptation is on steroids because he insists upon it. I almost think, well, I shouldn't go there. I almost think that he enjoys and part of his, his, what what makes him Trump and part of it, he likes seducing people to do his impermissible, inappropriate, dishonest uh, bidding. Uh, and that that's part of what, what gives him a little bit of a thrill. He's like, he gets look, the, the lawyers let me grab them by the... I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, <laughs> well, but yeah, and, and, and that's part of the problem is that what you said, the confirmation bias takes over. We're here. The confirmation bias is intense. So, look, we don't have much time left. Um, and I wanted to talk about this federal bail situation because everybody's talking about how bad the, this bail is in New York and the bail reform and so forth. Um the federal system is different. Do I have time to do this? Go for it. Do it in 60 seconds. Go. Okay. The federal system works like this, that there are a class of crimes for which the there is a presumption that no condition or set of conditions will be able to uh, protect society and ensure the individuals or ensure the individuals return to court. And those what we call presumption cases, there's a presumption that the person should be detained without any bail. However, it's rebuttable. And it should be easily rebuttable because we're talking pre-trial. And what has happened, the University of Chicago did a study that the, there's a dramatic increase in the amount of individuals being detained in the federal system. And there's no cash bail there. Um, and that the individu- individuals being detained are being detained improperly, that there is a racial element to it, that more people of color are being detained improperly than, than people, um, Caucasians, and a huge, huge uh, problem with individuals being detained uh, because of this presumption and because of the way the laws are prov- uh, applied by judges. And these are federal judges. And they're... they're- basically advocating for judges and legislature to take an approach that is data-driven, not politically driven. Ultimately, everybody has an agenda these days. Yeah, so it's the University of Chicago, the law school, Federal Criminal Justice Clinic. Uh, it's a long, long article, but the executive summary is is manageable, and the study is very important. And for those who are talking about bail, that's our fear with bail reform, or why bail reform was so important, because you end up with individuals of color, poor individuals being detained improperly for long periods of time pre-trial. Who aren't dangerous to society and, and who likely, if they were guilty, won't reoffend. And will return to court when they're supposed to, which is the other part of this. We'll be back next week with another episode, another time of Crime and Justice Radio. Hope, Follow us. Hopefully no announcement on a new Riker's death. Hopefully no new announcement on Riker's death. We'll see you next week. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.